Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Spinning Back Click, where each week here at MMA Junkie, we take a spin through the biggest stories in MMA. I'm your host, Gorgeous George, and with me as always, some of the sharpest minds in the biz. The MMA Titan is back from his world travels. Mike Bond joins us here on today's program. How about our international superstar reporter, Farah Hanoon? She joins us from overseas and, of course, goes the creator of SBC and my MMA Junkie Radio co-host. He's here with us as well. Wait till you hear about the mustache he's got to grow. I haven't forgotten, folks. And uh, Kamikaze's going to handle the ones and twos. Let's get to it. All right, this past Saturday night at Noche UFC, we were treated to an epic main event between Alexa Grasso and Valentina Shevchenko. The fight of the year candidate, in my opinion, went all five rounds. And the fate of both combatants was left in the hands of the judges. Judges Sal Diamato. Junichiro Kamijo and Mike Bell respectively turned in scores of 48-47, Shashenko, 48-47, Grasso, and 47, it pains me to say this, 47, and with that, the split draw announcement. Grasso retained her title. Panel, let's hear your reaction to this amazing title fight and tell us how you scored it. Uh, we go to Mike for the first take. Yeah, this was a excellent fight. Like these two more than delivered in every way you could possibly imagine. Uh, it was a step up from the first fight, you know, minus the finish, but extremely competitive. You could tell they were both very prepared for this. And yeah, I agree with you, George. Definitely one of the best fights of the year. Definitely one of the best female fights of the year for sure. And as far as how I scored it in the end, I did think we were going to have a winner, like one where or the other, whether it was going to be Shevchenko or Grosso, 3-2. I could see it really going either way, but I did not really factor in the potential of a draw there, and that's what we got because of that blatantly egregious 10-8 scorecard by Mike Bell, which I just can't wrap my head around. I've watched that fifth round back again, and it makes no sense to me. I mean, there was, of course, a big moment there for Grosso, uh, she had, you know, obviously the, the biggest, most definitive points in that round. But is it enough damage? Is it enough prolonged, uh, sustained control, that stuff to warrant a 10-8? I just, I can't see it at all. And I know there was a lot of rounds that were close. Round four seems to be very pivotal as well as far as how it went. But to me, I had Shevchenko one, three, and four. And you could even make a case for her getting round five if you wanted to. I know Michael Bisbing got a lot of backlash and being like the first saying that I think Shevchenko won. And I think John Anik kind of doubled down on that too and rewatching it. He said he thought Shevchenko getting round five was more realistic than giving it 10-8 Grosso. So mm-hmm. I just don't really see how we ended up with a draw here. I personally had it 3-2 for Shevchenko. If you wanted to go 3-2 Grosso, I would have been able to stomach that just fine. But the draw scorecard, the 10-8, really just doesn't make sense to me. So it's unfortunate given what these two women did in there, the effort they put forth that they neither of us neither of them got to be the winner and that's kind of just the disappointment here i know we'll discuss everything it spins into going forward but i think right now it's just uh kind of disappointing that we didn't get a definitive result here big time disappointing and not just the work they did that night those camps that lead to these fights all the promotion to just kind of have this nothing burger it sucks, man. All right, Fada, your thoughts here, your reaction. What did you think when all this unfolded on Saturday night and then we were treated to a split draw? So like I always say, I watch these fights after pulling an all-nighter in the middle of the night, so I'm not going to ever be the best judge when I'm watching in the middle of the night, but I think regardless of how awake any of us were, this was a pretty tough fight to score. The way I look at it overall, because I just rewatched the fight, 
is Valentina won most of the fight, and I think Grosso edged her out in, in terms of more impactful moments. When I look at the knockdown, the way she finished the fight, it all came down to round four, just like the majority think. 10-8 is insane because Valentina was on her way to winning that round until that mistake. So this is, it's the same theme from the first two fights, Valentina mistakes. And it's a fight. Credit to Alexa Grosso for capitalizing on those mistakes. But I think uh, in the first fight, it seemed to be that spinning uh, back kick. And then in this fight, towards the end, I feel like if Valentina doesn't make that mistake, she wins the fight. So overall, when you look at each minute of the fight, I think Valentina won more of the fight. I just think Grosso capitalized and had more impactful moments throughout the fight. Round four, super close. Watching it back, I gave it, uh, I think I'm leaning Grasso. So overall, I did score the fight 3-2 to Grasso. But again, totally fine if somebody goes uh, Valentina 3-2. Uh, round five, 10-8 is insane. Uh, Grasso did finish that fight strong. Body language is everything. And her having that full mount back position, raining down punches on Valentina. But she did that in the final, what, minute, minute and a half of the fight? not four minutes and a half or the majority of the round, which is why 10-8 is insane. So yes, a great visual for Grasso, the way she ended the fight, not so good for Valentina, but Valentina was winning that round. So yes, round five is Grasso in my opinion, but 10-8 is crazy. And if Grasso doesn't get that 10-8, judges were going to give it to Valentina. So I feel for Valentina, totally get her bitterness as people are, are saying she's a sword loser and whatnot. She's just competitive. And I think she made some great adjustments in the rematch. Just unfortunate little things that happened in the fight and mistakes that Alexa was able to capitalize. And overall, in my opinion, had the more impactful moments. All right. So we kind of have what was panning out that night, a 48-47 for Shashenko, 48-47 for Grasso. How about you, Goes? Your reaction? What was your score? Well, the fight itself was amazing. I, I think considering the fact that a lot of people felt going in that maybe the first fight might have been a little bit of a fluke, right? People were saying that. These two proved that, I mean, these two rivals were much closer in skills than I think we we all anticipated. And I think a little bit of it was Valentina Shevchenko coming out a little angry in this fight. You know, she was a little bit more aggressive. And you look at uh, Alexa Grasso, I think, again, she did, she had another improvement in her game. Like, when do we ever see people taking down Valentina uh, the way she did? knocking her down the way she did you know if your name's not amanda nunez we don't really get to see that too often so there were improvements on both sides um but you know to me the scoring was just crazy i i i had i had it for grasso at the end of the day but it was very very close and i'm okay if you were to score it for shevchenko but really it comes down to round four for me that one was the really close one and um it's so close that honestly i don't have a problem if you say valentina shevchenko but i knew at round two, that it was a fight that I wanted to see again. And that was a great feeling. You know, I didn't want to see Valentina come in and steamroll her or anything like that. Um, I actually do think these these two rivals are a lot closer in skill set now. And I'm excited to see what can come next from all this. But it's just unfortunate that we have to have this conversation surrounding such a big fight, surrounding such a big event. You know, these types of things really, really affect careers. And it's unfortunate that we're in this situation. Yeah, Mike, I want to go back to you. You mentioned that Bisping and Anik lean more towards a Valentina 10-9 than a uh, Grasso 10-8. Similar to that, I think Valentina is more capable of landing a 10-8 in round three than Grasso is landing a 10-8 in round five. And I'll explain because Fada kind of touched on this. In round five, Grasso did have some dominant moments. I think she blocked a lot, honestly, and there was some strikes to the back of the head, but optics, right? Like Eric Nick Six likes to say, it does look like she was uh, not intelligently defending herself, but then all of a sudden she exploded and kind of almost wound up on top of her. And then I think uh, there was a, a was that the leg lock attempt? I can't remember, but there was something towards the end that didn't that wasn't that didn't really matter too much. But regardless, she did kind of look like she was sinking in a, a choke. That choke was only held on for about ten to twelve seconds, guys. And Valentina was already out of it. The inverted uh, guillotine was held on to about a minute. I'd say about the first 30 seconds was, I had the feeling that it could end. So did the announcers, so did the crowd. And then obviously you could tell she was going to be okay. And it was just a matter of Valentina pulling out of it, making sure that she was okay. But Valentina started all that with 3.30 left in that round. And basically after that guillotine was unsuccessful, it was still two and a half minutes of the body triangle, taking her back, 
before I think with like 10 seconds, like Alexa kind of escaped, turned into her, but not fully, and Valentina hung on to her. That I thought had dominance and duration, time and the fact that she was in a dominant position. Not damage, that's the key word. Sometimes I feel like if that's one of the three Ds, that leads to the 10-8. Uh, Alexa might might have been having that damage, or at least what many people may have thought was. I respectfully disagree. I didn't think it was that damaging. Um, she didn't have uh, duration, and she didn't have. I mean, I guess she did have dominance, but not not as long. I, I don't know. What, what do you think, Mike? I, I, I swear, sorry for taking up so much time here, but ten eight in, in round three for Valentina versus ten eight for Grasso. What do you think of that? I mean, I don't think any of the rounds in this fight were 10-8 at the end of the day, right? I think that's what it comes down to. All of them were close enough, competitive enough. And I know that kind of in the modern uh, era of the unified rules and how these fights are supposed to be scored, they want the judges to be more liberal with their 10-8s than maybe they were 5, 10 years ago, things like that. But there's still a fine line there, and I think they kind of crossed it a little bit with going into the 10-8 realm here. I know that the way you just broke down those rounds, George, was, was very nice. And as a judge, maybe you want to distinguish a round, like you calling all these rounds 10-9s and something more significant happens in a, another round and you want to say, hey, this is a 10-8 because it wasn't the same. And that's where people will start making the argument for like a half point system and things like that. So there is more tools at the judge's disposal. But given the criteria they have to go off now, the tools they have you know, at their disposal, I don't think any of those rounds should have gone into 10-8 territory. And I think when you circle back to that point that Bisbing and Anik were making, I don't think it was necessarily that they truly believe that Valentina won that fifth round 10-9. I think they're just saying it's so egregious to call it a 10-8 for Grosso that like, if you're wanting to make a case for one or the other, they felt there was a stronger case for uh, a 10-9 for Valentina than the other side. And uh, just want to address a comment from Zero Respect in the chat here saying, you have to take the belt if you're the challenger. Valentina didn't do that. No, you don't have to take the belt. Every fight should be scored the same in terms of the optics of it. You shouldn't say, hey, this is because it's a championship fight. I'm going to give the person who's the champion the 10-9, the benefit of the doubt, just because they are the champion. And the challenger didn't do something this definitive. The belts and stakes and things like that should not be coming into a judge's mind or anyone else's when judging a fight. You should judge the first prelim of the night under the same criteria that you judge the final main event championship fight. So uh, that's my take on that comment as well. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, girls, let me give you this one because I think you've talked about this in the past when we've addressed open scoring. But Benny in the chat says, hey, guys, do you think that if the judges feel like they made a mistake in scoring one of the previous rounds, do they then try to correct it in the later rounds? In this case, the 10-8 for Grasso in the fifth. You know how we've talked about open mm -hmm. scoring. If it flashed and the other two went one way and everyone's booing, you might feel inclined to go the other way. So can you address Benny's question here in the chat? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like in basketball, right? The makeup call. We see that all the time. We see it in soccer. But I don't think that that really happened in this particular instance. And and that's kind of like the most frustrating thing about this whole situation, guys, is we always talk about accountability. And that definition, I think, is different for a lot of people. When a lot of people say accountability, I think some people think that means you got to fire a person or get rid of them. It's not always like that. A lot of it just comes down to tell us what you saw. Why is it that you were watching the same fight as everyone else, but came up with something else? Can you explain that to everybody? And we don't really have any of that. And that's what I think is the most frustrating part of all this is it almost feels like sometimes they're a little too protected, these judges. Um, but I could see something like that happening, just not in this particular fight and in this situation. It, it really is mind, mind boggling. Folks, as you can see, we take questions from the chat. Mike took one. I took one. I'm going to send this one to Fada. Uh, the the better the question, you know, lay it out for me. Uh, the easier I can get to it. If you want to sit there and, and be a jokester or whatever, hey, at least be funny and maybe we can include you in the show. This comes from Purple Aki. There needs to be a total revamp of the scoring system, and judges have combat experience. Fod, I believe you said you think over the course of the fight, Valentina was the better fighter. Did was that you that said that? Yeah, I just felt like she was winning more of the fight, is what I said. Like, when you look at every single right. minute of the fight, which is not the way we necessarily judge things, but if you do, she was winning, in my opinion, the majority of the fight is just Alexa would capitalize on specific moments and steal uh, those rounds off of her, which credit to her, right? Because 
optics like you guys keep uh, quoting Eric Nixick like that's what it's about and that's what round five for me was her ending that's why for me I couldn't give Valentina round five I would definitely not give Alexa a 10-8 but that's why I couldn't give Valentina round five because just ending the fight in that compromised position where uh, Alexa was very close to finishing her uh, for me that's difficult to give her the round now Valentina was doing good work in that round up till that moment but just that visual of of Alexa getting that full mount and raining down punches and almost cinching in the rear naked choke, switching it to a neck crank right before time wind down. There's no way in my eyes you could give Valentina that round. It's just for me, 10-8s are being thrown around way too easily. I was just, I want to look back at some of the old fights. I think that's what I'm going to have to do sometime and look at some of these dominant performances. Like I think, for example, JDS and Cain Velasquez. Now, I don't know what the scorecards looked like for that trilogy about where Velasquez ended up finishing him, but if we're talking about that, what was that, a 10-6? Did they? But they probably didn't give that, right? So now we're seeing a lot more of these like 10-8, 10-7, 10-6, and it doesn't really warrant that. So I think how lenient they are with the criteria is kind of what's ruining things right now in terms of scorecards is that we're so, like we jump to give a 10-8 or a 10-7 so quickly when we've seen rounds that have actually been absolutely dominant. So when I look back at those fights, like they were, I know for a fact they were not scored 10-4 or 10-5, right? They were probably scored 10-8 or maybe even 10-7 at best. And if you look at the 10-8 that we just saw compared to, for example, what Velasquez did with Dos Santos, then this is my issue with it, basically. And I know it's subjective, guys, but, you know, I in the MMA Decisions website, um, I went and checked out the other results, right? You know, in the Knutson fight, Bell, the judge in question here for the split draw he had a 30 24 for knutson Derek minor i know brian minor believe his name he had 30 27 so both judges said oh yeah knutson gets the round but one judge said 10 8 10 8 10 8 while the other one said 10 9 10 9 10 9 that is i mean i, I guess i can appreciate at least them getting the, the right fighter compared to a 30 27 this way and 30 27 that way but the fact that Maybe they're not all on board on what the the uh, barrier is or the bar is for a 10-8, 10-9. That's a little concerning. You know, we're here in Nevada, we always brag about kind of having the most experienced judges. And Saturday night was a little different for sure. Let's move on. Um, all right. Topic two. As stated earlier, the UFC took over September 16th from the sport of boxing here in Las Vegas. In the past, Mexican Independence Day has drawn many boxing fans to Sin City over the years, but this time it was the UFC that put on the show Noche UFC. The event delivered in the eyes of many that were live in attendance and those that watched from home. With the UFC now sporting a healthy roster of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, should this become an annual event in Las Vegas, which, as most of you know, is also the home base of the MMA leader. Fada, we go to you for the first take here. Yeah, I love it. I, I, I don't see why not continue to do that stuff. It's it's a great opportunity for a lot of these fighters to get to to show off their culture, to get get to have an event that's all about them, especially that this card had some of the younger uh, fighters that either came out of the Contender Series or obviously phenomenons like uh, Raul Rosas Jr., but just an event that's dedicated all about them and them showing off their culture, uh, gathering the crowd. It's just... It, it look as you can see here in the crowd the Rey Mysterio mask and or sorry the Luchador mask like all, all that stuff like just making uh these guys get an opportunity to represent themselves something that we don't often see in the UFC obviously things have been restricted we're not their fighters aren't allowed flags anymore but now you know the mariachi bat all that stuff it's just fun it, it gets it gives the fighters an opportunity to show off some of their personality so yeah I'm all for it all right how about you guys are you all for it I thought I thought it was a home run. I mean, look, the closest sport that we have to compare with is boxing, right? And you see the impact that the Mexican fighters have had in, in the boxing world and some of the big events that have that we've had here in Las Vegas, even in Mexico City. There's been some pretty amazing fights, but uh, it's a huge impact that the Latino market has overall. And so for the UFC to do this, I thought it was kind of cool because it, it let them get out of their shell a little bit, right? We're always talking about how every event looks the same and this one kind of stood out i thought it was a great idea they they promoted it really well and the the thing that i liked about it the most was it wasn't a pay-per-view we didn't have to go out of our pocket to pay again uh no pay-per-view however it had a pay-per-view feel to it and that was a good feeling you know if, if you were in the arena 
the chance that the people bring together the flags all that was insane great mixture of fighters um but if you were at home you know the vignettes that they ran even bringing brandon moreno into the booth these are all things that they don't normally do and i like that they thought outside of the box so overall i thought noche was a home run mm -hmm. and mike you strike me as the type of guy that's put down some modelos coronas tequila in the past <laughs> um you had to be feeling it as well man my canadian brother yeah yeah, it was fun. I mean, anything the UFC can do to differentiate their product when you're doing, you know, 43 fight cards a year and make something feel special and unique is more than welcome at this point. I mean, we watch all these shows and whether it's happening, uh, you know, in a stadium in Brazil or Sweden or whatever the case may be, UFC Apex, anything like that. Obviously, the big distinction between these shows currently is like a UFC Apex show with no crowd or a couple hundred people or like an arena show. And then to have this arena show with this extra layer on it was a lot of fun. And they did a great job. You see the B-roll uh, kamikaze just dropped there with you know, the mariachi band and the crowd and just all the stuff that brought a unique element to it. Goes broke down the, the list of things there really nicely. So, yeah, I would love this to see be like a yearly thing if they could do it. Uh, maybe try to put some other things in their schedule that are along the same vein. But it's really dependent on the roster, right? Like this was circumstantial in the sense that you have Alexa Grasso from Mexico able to carry this event as the headliner and the people are willing to come out. I mean, for them to have over 18,000 people in T-Mobile arena, a nearly $3 million gate for a fight night in Las Vegas is uh, beyond a home run for them. I mean, it is just astronomical how on fire the UFC is right now to draw a crowd like this in a gate like that for a fight night, not a pay-per-view in Las Vegas where they get lots of shows and, you know, it's hard to get people out there in some times of the year. So this was great all around. Uh, more of it, please, as many of these types of things as you could possibly get because it's a lot of fun and it makes just the viewing experience when these shows can be very monotonous at times a lot more fun. The UFC used to have more themed events on an annual basis, basis like the Super Bowl Saturday card the day before the Super Bowl, the New Year's Eve card which was basically as close as they could get to the 31st. But basically, you know, they've moved that up a little bit. Memorial Day, Labor Day. Uh, now it's really more about International Fight Week versus 4th of July. But they kind of go hand in hand. You guys want to see more of that now that we're all kind of buzzing and gushing over what they did with Noche, Noche UFC? And if so, any specific ideas in which uh, what they could do? Fada? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about this off camera, like Bastille Day, uh, July 14th. I know the issue is I don't know if it would land on a Saturday. It's just probably what the issue would be with a lot of these uh, uh, holidays, national holidays. But it would just be cool. I mean, after being in Paris and seeing that type of environment now, would there be that many French friends if it was in Las Vegas or something like that? No, but they could make it themed and, and just when they go to London, when they go to Paris, just target the dates. But again, so many... Uh, football or soccer games and all that stuff that then concerts they have to weave around. So it's 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 fun. It's 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 fun. It's a good idea. It's just going to be a little bit hard to manage, but just the idea of a theme, uh, I think I enjoyed a lot. How about you guys? Themes? You like them? Yeah, I, I love themes. Um, you know, even if you go back to the Pride eras, right? They had their themes here and there. I think you could sprinkle in some of that stuff. Um, for as good as, as Noche was, I do think there are things that we can improve upon. And, and to start off with, I think the name, the name is just a little bland. You know, if, if, if you speak Spanish, it just translates into night. And I think there's something a little better. Maybe we can, we could add to that. I also think, you know, I love Bruce Buffer and I don't want to get rid of him. I think he should be there. But how about <laughs> Joe Martinez? What if we brought them both in, have one announce one guy, have the other one do the, the Latino names. I think that would be fun. And then here's another thing we have to consider, guys, is we were lucky that, you know, we had three Mexican champions. We're down to one. Is it going to carry the same weight if we don't have a belt on the line? When we don't do that, when we don't have a Mexican champion, uh, you know, we got the BMF belt, belt right? Why not create something for this noche, right? El mas chingon belt, right? They've already made the belt. It's already got it's already got that the cool coloring and all that. What if we did that when we didn't have a, a champion? Something, you know, there's so many things that you could do that would make this fun. But yeah, like good on you, UFC, for for figuring this out and, and giving the fans something to, you know, turn on your TV and just not feel like you're watching the same product all the time. This was awesome. Who would put on the first El Mas Chingon belt around the winner, like The Rock did to Masvidal? Can you think of someone off the top of your head? You better pick someone be that's pretty Chingon. 
it's got to be Julio Cesar Chavez. I think that's the dude you bring in. He he, he does that. Uh, please don't bring it. Not, nothing against Danny Trejo or any of those guys, but like bring in some of these guys that are known for this passion that's create that's kind of crossed over from boxing, right? Uh, 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 Juan Manuel Marquez, bring him in there. You know, there's so many guys that you could bring in. Uh, Barrera, he'd be great. But uh, I think bringing somebody in like that would just be so cool, man, to, to really pack onto that night. I'll tell you what, Vince Ortiz doesn't want you to bring uh, Mario Lopez to do it. He didn't even <laughs> like the way Mario Lopez was rolling his R's. He said he yeah. was reading the ad and it was embarrassing. I didn't think he did that bad, but I wasn't paying that close of attention. All right, Mike, I think we got a kind of a, a feel for how you felt about it. You gave a, a nice thorough answer. So we're going to move on here to topic three. During one of the prelims of the Noche UFC card, referee Chris, Chris Tyone put on uh, put a halt to the fight, I should say. And he thought Edgar Chavez had stopped Daniel Lacerda via a standing guillotine choke. Though the choke did look tight, Lacerda appeared fine and did not actually tap to the submission. However, after seeing Lacerda's arm go limp, that's when Tyone had stepped in to stop the fight. And he immediately saw and heard the disapproval of Lacerda and the crowd and probably the commentator booth. Uh, Dom Cruz, more specifically, was not in any way fired up about this decision now cage side officials uh they gathered afterwards they used the video replay to overturn the result and declare it a no contest no one got the dub no one got the l and no one got the win bonus panel in your opinion minus the stoppage was this handled correctly goes all that do man this situation is so difficult you know because it's hard to okay if you put them back together you can't really do it without giving somebody an advantage. And if you do that at the end of the fight, however it ends, somebody's going to have something to complain about, right? You can't can't put him back in the choke and just say, all right, make sure he's in the choke, but don't press too hard. Don't choke him too hard. Like you can't get, you can't replicate where they were at. So I think if you put them back together, there's just going to be somebody complaining about an advantage. So at, at this point, not knowing uh, the situation very well, Look, we got out of it. Let's figure out what we can do going forward because this situation, a lot of people have come down on Chris Tyone, and I get it. It ruined the fight. But if you're in a, a fight party and say there's 20 people there, when that arm goes limp like that, I guarantee you half of that room is screaming, he's out. We've seen broadcasters do that before, right? It's just unfortunate that he wasn't. And maybe there was a little bit more that could have been done. But instead of really coming down on this guy, I think going forward, let's figure the situation out. How do we how do we make it so that this doesn't fight? This doesn't happen again, because this is a, these are two fighters that are affected in the pocketbook because of it. Their standings are affected. All the training camp that went into it. Luckily, they didn't look too bad. I think we can reschedule it. But I would say moving forward, you, know, you still do the, the Hulkamania arm, right? If it drops, if you're the referee, scream as loud as you can. You know, give me a thumbs up. Do it a couple times because here's what's going to happen. If you only do it once, people are going to say, I couldn't hear you. The crowd was too loud. So really make sure. I don't see that there's too much damage if somebody's out uh, from one to two seconds, right? And that's all it takes to to scream that out. But moving forward, I think we do have to address this. Mm-hmm. All right. How about you, Mike? What did you think of this whole unfortunate sequence? Yeah, it was obviously not ideal from uh, Chris Tognoni there, but I'm glad that they at least got it right. The ability to do replay review in Nevada and quickly rectify it. Uh, I wish, though, that there was a path to being able to just restart a fight like this. I know there are some complications there, uh, mainly in my opinion, like, you know, Edgar was celebrating and jumping on the cage and being lifted up from his team to go back to a guy like that and be like, hey, you have to restart the fight now when he's probably had an adrenaline dump of sorts from the celebration that he's thought he's won and have to go back and restart the fight. I know there's some complications there, but I don't think it's like a timing thing. They got all this done, this replay review and all that through in about five minutes or less. That's no longer than a break you're giving someone for a low blow, for an eye poke. So I don't think the side of it of being like, oh, it might be too long until the fight is restarted. I don't think that's really an issue. I think they can go through this really quick. So I would have liked to see that. I know that's a big adjustment and an amendment to the rules that would have to be made. But given the circumstances, we are dealing with humans in there. There's human error from judging or refereeing, as we've talked about on this program from the beginning. Uh, So you're going to have errors. It's not going to be perfect every single time in there. Uh, But 
there's things you can do to alleviate it potentially. And this was one of them and going to the replay review, giving uh, the fight the correct no contest it deserved. And then maybe you get a rematch in there, but uh, it was certainly interesting. I think it made it worse. The fact that Dominic Cruz on commentary was like, he's going to stop it too early. He knew ex- he had a yeah. perfect beat on that whole situation. And then the ref stopped it early. And we had the whole WTF face from Lacerda being like, what is going on here? And then the whole aftermath of it. So uh, it's just, it's tricky, especially Chris Tognoni has a bit of a track record of some of the stuff going on in the past couple of years. So uh, just not a great look for him again, but Clearly, the Nevada Commission didn't have too big of an issue with it or put too much blame because he was back in there as a referee three fights later. Yeah, and you know what's funny is we've all seen enough fights where when someone does drop their arm, if the ref doesn't get there in time, the commentators start shouting that he's out, that he's out, that he's out. And I'm not saying Dom's on both sides of that because we obviously have a ton of commentators. So some might do this, some might do that or whatever. Um, I'm with Goes, Tyone. Didn't make a mistake. I thought Dom buried him pretty well. He pretty much said everything that, except that he stunk like what cigarettes and booze or something like that. <laughs> but you know he went in on him well. But he backed up his point because, like Mike said, he stated prior to the uh, to the stoppage that that's exactly what was going to happen. So I I do give him credit there for doing his homework uh, and and you know at least backing up his strong stance. All right, Fada, what did you think of all this madness? Yeah, I think two things, like just restart the fight and I think it would have kind of solved everything. They didn't have to go back with half their paycheck, both of them. And also um, to give Chris Tognoni a little bit of benefit of the doubt, Lacerda's hand did kind of go limp, but he just should have checked one more time. That's all he needed to do because then I think nobody would have argued that if he kind of shook his hand twice and didn't get a reaction and stopped it i think people would have been okay with that but that's all he kind of needed to do just one more little nudge in the arm and that's when that was the opportunity for lacerda to go like no i'm good or put a thumbs up but if you see in the visual here like he kind of shakes his hand and it kind of goes limp he doesn't um move at all and then the second he breaks up the fight lacerda's looking at him like what on earth and lacerda's oh and four he's essentially fighting for his job he just should have checked one more time is all he kind of needed to do. I think he was just quick uh, to jump. I think refs sometimes are probably a little worried about the whole uh, you're letting him take too much damage. We've seen refs get a lot of crap for that as well. So I think he should have just nudged them one more time. And if they have the ability to review, which they did, just let them continue. Put them back in that position. Maybe not in that guillotine choke because then uh, would be a little bit harder for him to fight it off. But just put give Tyrez the advantageous position and continue the fight. I don't see why not um, better than us having this whole discussion, right? <laughs> yeah. You're right. The second time, I think, would quiet probably the other 90% of complainers for sure that he went two times. We don't need WWE. We don't need the Hulk Hogan third time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, a second time I think definitely would help. And I did want to say this, and I know Mike wants to chime in, so maybe, Mike, you can take this. But in the Lawler-Askren fight, didn't we have something similar where Askren's body language was one of, um, you know, I'm out. I think it was that we call it a school dog choke. Um, and um, we had kind of a similar controversy, but it didn't blow up like this one. Mike? Yeah, it, it was Lawler on the other side. But, yeah, um, I know that one was obviously tricky. And, again, these things are going to happen. It's it's hard sometimes. You're in the heat of the moment. Um, you think maybe someone's unconscious for a second. But when you're talking about – like, it's one thing um, when you're talking about, like, a joint submission, a knee, an elbow, something like that, like how quickly it can go from super dangerous, uh, you know, long-term damage. When we're talking about blood chokes. It's not quite the same thing, right? Like you can, a guy can be out for an extra second or two. Of course you don't want something, you know, horrific, like you've seen on like pre uh, regional scene clips where guys are out for 30 seconds before the referee acknowledges that you don't want that. But when you're talking about a blood choke, I think it's it's better if you let the guy go out and he doesn't tap and he wants to go out or girl, uh, that's their choice. And then you kind of let it go from there. And it's much easier to not have so much concern about the prolonged damage there. So, yeah, there's plenty of instances of situations like this. Obviously, Askren versus Lawler was one of those as well. 
and uh, just kind of is what it is. Unfortunately, you would hope that the referees at this highest level of the sport would uh, be able to have a little more assurance and have these situations minimalized, but it's going to happen here and there. I think Farah laid out the great point that he should have checked the arm, you know, again and again to be super positive, especially given the angle he was at up against the cage standing those type of things. But um, I also, why I was putting my hand up there, George, was kind of to address this comment from uh, Ryan Tomasetti in the chat saying, you can't openly fight the refs in the commentary booth. Dan Hardy found this out the hard way. Well, Dominic, uh, completely different situations. Dan Hardy literally got in Herb Dean's face and started screaming at him from the commentary booth cage side from about a foot away. Dominic just gave his opinion on the broadcast. He wasn't yelling at the ref. He didn't make it a personal thing. So this is very different. And that's just you know one of the many layers of why dan hardy's relationship ended with the ufc that was more of a slap on the wrist situation there was another situation in abu dhabi with dan hardy and a ufc employee that happened that was ultimately kind of the the backbreaker for his parting ways with the company and dana white has talked about that openly in interviews and press conferences so if you want to kind of know the ufc's stance you can go look that up mm-hmm Good stuff. All right. Yeah. And Thomas Eddy and uh, Mulatu Vanguard are letting me have it as well. I kind of mixed like a DJ. Sometimes they call it a schoolyard. And yes, Bulldog Choke, you guys are correct. I'll take that L on that one. Uh, but I encourage more participation from the chat. I'll try to get to as many as we can. So keep bringing it. Now for this next segment, I want to bring in N- uh, Nick Tilwalk. He's the managing editor at Wrestling Junkie. So that's right, pro wrestling fans. Wrestling Junkie is the spot for you hardcores that enjoy WWE, AEW, AEW, excuse me, and New Japan. Welcome, Nick. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, thank you for uh, being part of this panel when we get to this topic here, which was a little bit earlier in the week, but still, it was major news. Our worlds kind of came together as the UFC and WWE merged under TKO Group Holdings, Inc., which is owned by the Endeavor Group. Endeavor head Ari Emanuel, along with Dana White and Paul Levesque, that's Triple H, they rang the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange and the new era began. Both sides have expressed excitement about the union. My question to you lot is, which company has more to gain from the other in your view? Nick, why don't you go first? I honestly think that WWE has more to gain from being merged with the UFC than vice versa, although I'm, I'm definitely open to your guys' experts' opinion on the other direction. Uh, I just really think that uh, from the business standpoint, uh, analysts have said for a long time that WWE has a lot of corporate sponsorship potential that they haven't tapped into. And obviously being under the Endeavor umbrella and what Endeavor has helped UFC kind of unlock in that area. Uh, can now be done for for WWE. Uh, One of the things that we talked about on the Wrestling Junkie Slack over the past week was if you look at the Octagon, uh, it's it's filled with advertisements. Obviously, UFC is an expert on getting corporate um, sponsors to buy into their product. And WWE is just really kind of scratching the surface of what they can do. They've had some big uh, in-event sponsorships over the past year with things like Slim Jim and Mountain Dew and cinnamon toast crunch but those are those are really they they they're not the experts at that yet and one of the things that everybody involved in this has said is hey endeavor can help WWE unlock this potential that it has now is every corporate sponsor that sponsors UFC going to want to sponsor WWE no of course not so it could be some overlap and some new sponsors but that's something that that WWE can certainly learn from UFC and i think uh something that we'll see very soon all right. Well, we'll definitely come back to you. Good stuff there to start things off. Uh, let's go to a cinnamon toast expert like Goes, uh, <laughs> who can maybe chime in. Do you agree with Nick? Are, are, are they going to benefit more from us, or are we going to get them? Easy, George. Don't make me snap you like a like a Slim Jim. Um, look, I think when you look at world wrestling entertainment, you have to focus on one word in there, and that's entertainment. That's something that the UFC has lost a lot of over the last couple of years with the Reebok deal, now Venom coming along. Every fighter looks the same. Nobody really stands out. Um, a few a few are able to do that, but not all of them. And I think what WWE does a really good job of uh, behind the scenes with their athletes is the PR side. You know, they really work with them really well whenever uh, sometimes I help out here with Pro Wrestling Junkie. And the way they approach their interviews, they, you could just tell they have that training. They really know how to get their messages across. I think something like that can benefit the UFC fighters. I know they've had their summits before, and 
kind of talked about that a little bit. I think that's one thing that could benefit the UFC fighters. And on the other side, you know, you look at what is WWE known for, right? Those big events, SummerSlam, Survivor Series, Royal Rumble, WrestleMania. We've already seen the UFC kind of do something similar in this Noche card. Maybe we could add to something like that. Maybe on those cards, you can jump out of your shell a little bit more. Maybe that's where you bring out the ramp. You bring out, you know, all the theatrics, the, the fireworks. That's something that I think uh, can cross over, right, in the right situation. And if you look at uh, the other side of the coin, WWE, where they could benefit is, you know, not every UFC fighter wins a belt. A lot of them do, but a lot of them don't make it that far. And some of them just get tired of it. And I think they could benefit from giving these athletes somewhere to go afterwards. Or if their career just doesn't pan out, they could have life in pro wrestling. We've seen Shayna Baszler, Ronda Rousey, Matt Riddle, all very successful over in WWE. And that's just a few of them. I think that's a a way that WWE can maybe benefit from this. Yeah, good stuff goes. All right, next up here on our panel is Fada. What are your thoughts here about this merger? Who can benefit more from the other, or is it maybe even just a, a you know, even Steven thing? Yeah, I mean, I think they both can benefit to add on to Goza's points. I mean, we were talking about Notche UFC just this Saturday and how maybe Julio Cesar Chavez could have wrapped uh, the belt around, uh, well, Alexa retained her belt. So, yeah, wrapped the belt around Alexa. Maybe we could have gotten Rey Mysterio or something like that if we're talking about crossovers and stuff like that. We had The Rock do it for the BMF belt. So it's just in in that regard, in terms of the entertainment aspect that Goes was talking about, uh, just having them cross over. And, yeah, there are a lot of MMA fighters that don't necessarily become champions but benefit from the entertainment aspect I can think of like a Mike Perry who's thrived in, in bare knuckle and all of a sudden he's weighing in as a backup for influencer boxing. I could imagine him going over uh, if he was still under contract um, to the WWE. Just it, it, There's benefit for both parties in, in that regard where you can just incorporate it to just uh, the entertainment aspect uh, like Go said. And also WWE can benefit from some of these popular uh, MMA fighters that may not be in the title picture anymore, but still want to be part of, are marketable enough to be part of big events and have big stages. And that's where they could, uh, you know, go on to appear even, don't even have to compete, just appear in the WWE. So yeah, I think both ways, uh, although Dana did seem to shoot down the the notion that the, the, the crowds, the fans, the fan bases will mix, he shot that down very aggressively, but I, I don't see why not, because then if you've got USC fighters that appear in WWE shows and vice versa, it kind of will cross over the fan base in a way, especially the diehard ones. All right, Mike, how about you, man? What are your thoughts on who benefits more? And let me put one more on your plate, because I was just thinking as Fada and Goes were thinking, you know, the WWE does these stadium shows, right? SoFi Stadium for WrestleMania. That was impressive. And Dana White has always said the production, the rigging, you know, getting something together. He seems to be resistant to it all. I've always thought that once we got this new stadium here in Las Vegas, we could knock one out of the park. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I guess I can answer that first one or yeah, last one first. And that's more so just I think it's just kind of a difference in philosophy. Like Dana White has always really embraced the arena style show. He thinks it's the best viewing experience where his like massive stadium shows have kind of been an institution of WWE since like its inception very early on with the WrestleManias and stuff. So they've kind of accustomed their fans to that, maybe knowing that you might get in the door for like the furthest away seat and you might look like you're watching two ants wrestle on a matchbox from far away, but it's still all about the environment and the atmosphere and being part of those walkouts and big moments and stuff. So I think the WWE fan is more conditioned, but I think it all kind of ties together, right? Like the biggest thing to me with this whole thing is just like the brand synergy behind the scenes and how the endeavor is going to try to sell this TKO group, uh, you know, combined to whether it's television rights coming up in the next few years when there's going to be similar alignment to when UFC's ESPN deal is up and when the WWE rights are up and they might try to package them together to a network, to a streaming service, uh, maybe go into the venture on their own type of platform that combines both. There's a lot of possibilities here and they've talked a little bit about too, like selling, uh, you know, on the road events, you go to X city 
in whatever country and say, hey, uh, we have a full weekend of live events here. We can do a SmackDown on Friday night, a UFC show on Saturday night, and maybe a WWE pay-per-view on Sunday. You give us the site fee for the whole weekend, a huge dollar in the UFC's pocket, and or Endeavor's pocket, rather, and they bring this whole weekend of show that elevates uh, the economy of your city and brings people in, staying in hotels, restaurants, all that stuff. So to me, it's more like behind-the-scenes stuff. I know someone asked here in the chat, like, could we see hybrid events? I don't think we're going to see hybrid events where it's, you know, an MMA fight one minute and a wrestling match the next minute. But I think you might see hybrid weekends that I kind of just explained there. So there's a lot of layers to this. But I think most of all, it's going to be like Ari Emanuel showing what he is really best at historically. And that's being able to package certain things like this and being able to sell them to whether it's sponsors, live events, television, all these different things that um, maybe the the casual fan doesn't necessarily care about because they're not seeing it in front of their eyes as much. It's more the business side. Mm-hmm. All right. Nick, you brought up names like Shayna Baszler and, and or sorry, they were brought up like Shayna Baszler and, Ronda Rousey, Matt Riddle, a few others. Um, how big were they? You know, we kind of observe from a distance and see maybe one of them get their hand raised. I mean, you don't have to answer on Ronda's behalf because we know she was a star. But how about some of the other ones? Like, they can't all be slam dunks on the superstar level, right? No, I don't I don't think that being a star in UFC is automatically going to make you a star in WWE. I'd actually argue that Ronda Rousey has been – Overall, maybe a little bit of a disappointment in that respect. I, I think that that WWE expected, uh, and certainly when she was first brought over, she was a big deal. Crowds reacted to her very strongly. But I think as time went on, uh, that kind of wore off a little bit. And I, and I don't think that she might have been as big a draw as uh, WWE was expecting. Of course, the, the gold standard is kind of like Brock Lesnar, right? Because Brock was a huge star in both. And I don't think everybody can get to that level. That being said, I do think that there is a certain amount of notoriety that any successful UFC fighter is going to bring to WWE, get some extra eyeballs on of them that that might not care about them if they were just brought up through pro wrestling. So I, I think it's always worthwhile. And I and I definitely think now that the merger is in place, uh, those kind of things are going to be easier going forward. Nick, I got a question from the chat. Uh, from Ryan Tomasetti. I think it's a good one. Back in the day when I was growing up, the uh, TBS channel was launched, and they would have, I think it was either NWA or WCW. I can't remember, but it'd be kind of in a small arena. He was saying, could you see the UFC maybe doing stuff at the Apex? Have they gone that route, or are they mostly arenas and stadiums? No, I think for WWE, they're they're going to be all in arenas and stadiums. And actually, they've been making a push toward more stadium shows. That SummerSlam is now exclusively in football and baseball stadiums. Um, some of their other pay per views are, are going that way. Uh, sorry, they call them premium live events now, but but there'll always be pay per views for those of us who have been around for a long time. And uh, I don't I don't think I don't think I can see WWE doing things small. They're they're always going to be pushing to go bigger from now on. Mm-hmm. Nick, tell us a little bit more about Wrestling Junkie before we let you go. You know, I mentioned you guys covered WWE, New Japan Wrestling, AEW. What else does the site have to offer a pro wrestling fan? I, I think that along with, like, news and and reports on the, the latest weekly shows for both WWE and AEW, one of the things that I think that we're very proud of having just launched last year is that we help put things in perspective. We tell you why things are important, why things are happening that the way that they are, uh, some informed speculation on things. We also offer the Under the Ring podcast with Phil Strum as host. Phil's been covering wrestling for over a decade, has a lot of good connections, talks to top stars from WWE and AEW and the independent circuit all the time. So we kind of try to provide, uh, we're a small team, but we're trying to provide a lot of different uh, ways of looking at pro wrestling. And and we think uh, a lot of people will uh, have fun checking it out. Well, I know I have. And again, thank you very much for what you guys are doing over there. There's... I think a lot of crossover. I think at first maybe there was more of a dividing line. Same thing happened with boxing. But I've seen a lot of pro wrestling fans merge over to our site, and I know a lot of our sites or a lot of our fans, uh, the MMA Junkie fans, have been excited about Wrestling Junkie. And I want to thank you for stopping by today's show. Hopefully, we can do this more often because I anticipate more of this crossover type of news happening in the future. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, UFC and WWE, for merging and letting us have a reason to do this legitimately. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, hey, who do you think is the next 
superstar in Ars Fortnick. Well, from UFC, it doesn't matter what you think, Nick. I beat it. I walked right into that. <laughs> That's right. Thanks, Nick. See you, man. All right, take Thank care. Thank you. All right, and folks, we continue here with Topic 5. Man, Nick's going to hate me. I was kind of a jerk there. All right, it's been a few weeks since UFC 292 in Boston where Sean O'Malley defeated Aljamain Sterling to become the Bantamweight champion. Sterling has continued expressing his desire for an immediate rematch in the stacked Bantamweight division. However, recently saddled up to former, uh, former champion in the middleweight division, Israel Adesanya, his similar status. Adesanya, as you know, lost his title at UFC 293 a few weeks ago. But he's kind of received support from Dana White in terms of the possibility of running it back. What do you guys think of the Funk Masters position? Fair or foul? Fada, it's up to you. I get where he's coming from when saying that if Adesanya, if the UFC give Adesanya uh, an immediate rematch, why not him? Because if you look at it in terms of credentials, I mean, people were talking about Aljo potentially being the Bantamweight GOAT. He's got most title defenses in the division's history. Um, he did get caught. I think it was a good performance from Sean O'Malley. It wasn't like Aljo was like dominating, then he got caught. I think overall, we can't take anything away from Sean O'Malley's performance. Adesanya, on the other hand, it was a pretty lopsided uh, loss to Sean Strickland. I think from a business perspective, I get why the UFC would say uh, Adesanya potential rematch, even though Dana seemed to walk that back a little bit. He said, I didn't say that necessarily. I said there were options, blah, blah, blah. But in my opinion, respectfully, I don't think either uh, should get an immediate rematch just because we've got a clear cut number one contender in both divisions in Dricos Duplessis and in Mirab Devalishvili. So when you've got a situation like that where these fights, we're not talking about Grasso and Shevchenko because then we've got Manon Fioro and Aaron Blanchfield who are clear contenders that have to potentially wait. I don't hate the idea of a trilogy there because there's a lot of controversy. There's no controversy in these fights and we've got two guys, uh, potentially more contenders even, waiting in the wings for their shots. So uh, I get where Aljo's coming from and saying, well, if you give it to Adesanya, he just did recently get his immediate rematch against Pejeda. Why not give it to me? But respectfully, I don't think either necessarily warrant an immediate rematch. Uh, I think the divisions, both of them need to move on. Okay. Goes, how about you? Fair or foul? I think what he wants is fair. I think the way he went about it is foul. Um, you know, we say this week after week here on the show, it's consistency. We want, we want that across the board in all situations. For me, that post-fight interview is so important. And I wish he just would have started to lay the foundation for that. Uh, a little bit sooner. I think he would have had a stronger case and we wouldn't have been jumping around to everything else that kind of makes sense at this moment. Like I get it. You can't discredit Aljo. Uh, what he did was amazing in probably one of, if not the toughest divisions in all of mixed martial arts. So I get where he's coming from, but the way he went about it is just wrong. And, and he's confusing people, you know, at one moment it's, it's Marab at the next moment it's him. And, and so when Dana White says, he's kind of a little difficult to deal with. I kind of get that a little bit. I think it's just the way he states things. Sometimes he's just not clear enough, but you already know that Dana White's probably not his favorite fighter. The whole Marab and Aljo situation probably doesn't help at all. And then you just have these built-in storylines. You know, you have Cheeto Vera waiting in the wing. That, that just seems like something that can happen. And I think Sean O'Malley probably has a little bit more power than we all think. And he's done a good job of playing his cards. So right now, all signs point that it's going to move away from Aljamain Sterling, but I don't hate him for trying. That's what you have to do. All right, Mike Bond, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, um, I mean, his request in a vacuum is fair, right? Like you look at he, in this current reign, uh, was a more long-term dominant successful champion than Israel Adesanya was in this current reign, of course. This was Izzy's second one, and he never defended the title after reading it for Perea. So if you look at him and be like, hey, why does he get a rematch with zero title defenses uh, after losing very lopsided fight? Aljo can make the case. I just got caught with a punch and hurt. We know he thinks it was a bit of an early stoppage, things like that. Um, but in terms of like one-to-one, -one, obviously the situations are different. I mean... Goes laid it out pretty well there. Aljo's constant flip-flopping on I'm going to step aside and let Marab Nabalashvili have the title shot to I want the rematch. It's like a daily thing, right? And he says a different thing, has a different take on it. And it's just become tiresome to the fan that when he comes out and makes maybe a fair and astute point like this, 
they're just like, ah, oh, give me a break. Another Aljo comment where he's not sticking to one lane here. So I think he needs to pick what he wants to do at the benefit or harm of his relationship with Marab and try to pursue it that way because it's going to be a lot more palatable in terms of seeing. But yeah, the most successful bantamweight champion, the most wins in divisional history could rally off all of Aljamain Sterling's accomplishments of why he does deserve a rematch. But it just depends. Does the UFC want him as champion? Do they want to put him in that position? I'm sure there's other people at Bantamweight. They prefer Sean O'Malley, obviously, probably being the top of the list. But then there's Achito Vera and you know Umar Nurmagomedov, Corey Sanhagen, these names that I'm sure they see as more marketable. So I don't think they're going to be rushing Aljo back into another title fight uh, until he maybe gets a win. Whereas Izzy... We clearly know how they feel about him. He has documentaries coming out. He's on the cover of the video game Deluxe Edition and is clearly one of the UFC's marquee stars and a pay-per-view draw for him. So for him to get shoehorned into a rematch where, for the reasons Farah explained, he probably doesn't deserve right now, given the length of his reign and how definitively he was beaten by Sean Strickland. It just doesn't add up. So two completely different situations. I know Aljo sees an easy opportunity to make the connection here, but uh, we know the UFC, if you've been watching the sport long enough, if you've been following the decisions they make, they are case by case. There's no consistency, and it just completely depends on who you are and the circumstances around you at the given time. The UFC is definitely inconsistently consistent for sure. Uh, Ryan Caddick in the chat says, Izzy needs a break. Arturo MT, he brought up a good point. He says, Adesanya is making history. That's the difference. And like Mike pointed out, so did Aljo. Aljo had a historic run, but Izzy's making history, I think, when you package in the whole brand of that fighter. Good stuff there. If I can get to some more, I will. I do ask one thing of you, though, those in the chat, those are listening, those that catch this on a replay. Hit the like and subscribe button. It triggers the algorithm, which gets us in the eyes, in front of more eyes, and uh, allows us to continue blowing up this show. So please hit the like and subscribe because it's an awesome channel with a lot of content. And by the way, in about in less than five minutes, as we end this show, on a separate stream, you will catch the Dana White Contender Series weigh-ins for uh, this week. Let's hammer some quick ones here, guys. This is like a speed round. PFL and Bellator both had big announcements this week. The return of Kayla Harrison, who faces Julia Budd in their, uh, their their final that they have here coming up in November, versus Bellator's return to the Windy, Windy City with two title fights, and I believe that lightweight Grand Prix continues. Who caused the biggest wave? Goes. Uh, don't get me wrong. It's great to see Kayla Harrison back in action. Anytime you hear that, it's great news. It's just the opponent, you know, just kind of falls a little flat. Uh, with Bellator titles, Grand Prix, I think that just carries more weight. I think they won that announcement. All right. Uh, Michael, what do you think? I don't know if either of them caused waves, to be honest. I think maybe you're in a, a lake and you just got a little splash on the shore. <laughs> oh, all right. How about you, Fada? I mean, <laughs> if I had to pick one, just because I think the Patchy Mix and Sergio Pettis fight is going to be a really good one. So I'm excited about that one. So I'm going to go Bellator. Yeah, I like that one, that one too. All right. Kevin Holland, he stated he would have fought in Australia the week prior at UFC 293 if the UFC paid his taxes. And after seeing John McDessie's post uh, regarding his financial statement pertaining to UFC 293, was Holland right? Mike, well, what'd you think, man? I, th I think maybe that uh, now I back Holland. Yeah, I mean, this is a much more complicated topic, but uh, people were criticizing that card in Australia for being a little bit thin on the name value. You now understand why it is uh, not a desirable location for any of these fighters to travel to. Kevin Hall may say one thing. Um, yeah, I don't know, but I think if he really wanted to fight there and was open to it, he would have fought there. I think I could have sworn I seen like a 45% deduction, man. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's different takes. Meeting. I saw, you know, Ali Abdelaziz, for better or worse, what you think of him as a manager. He did respond saying, you do this correctly, you fill out this stuff. Uh, you should be able to get a lot of that reimbursed. So maybe okay. it was the UFC failing to communicate exactly what John McDessie had to do. Maybe it was him, his management team, failing on how they need to work things out. Hopefully he can reimburse some of that money because that is a devastating tax. All right, we're up against the clock, so I'm just going to give this last one to Fada. The reaction to Sean Strickland, his win, it just kept rolling all week. Ben Askren had an interesting take, though. He said Holly Holmes' upset of Ronda Rousey is the bigger upset than Strickland over Adesanya. Do you agree, Fada? 
Yes, I do, because just for the simple reason that Rhonda had that aura of invincibility at that time, and we just never saw that outcome coming, whereas Adesanya had already lost multiple times. So I'm not going to act like I wasn't surprised by that outcome. I was very surprised, but I just think the idea that Rhonda, what were they talking about her beating Floyd Mayweather? <laughs> That's right. The correct right. answer is still GSP and Matt Sarah, though, for the record. Yes, yes I yeah. agree. I yeah. agree. Well, good stuff there. All right. You guys knocked it out of the park, as always. And again, thank you to Nick uh, Tilwalk from uh, Wrestling Junkie. Folks, on a separate stream, you got the Dana White Contender Series starting right up here in about five seconds. So we bid you adieu. And don't forget, you can catch us every week here at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. For spinning back click. Please hit that like and subscribe. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.